This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the forthcoming book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 196 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Sabrina Strings, sociologist and author of the new book, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. We discuss the history of how quote-unquote race science led to the development of diet culture, the many problems with using weight as a measure of health, how culture influences science, and so much more. It's such a fascinating conversation, and so is the book. And I highly recommend it if you want to delve into all of this history with some really compelling storytelling. It's a great read. Just a quick heads up about the book that there are some weight numbers in it. So if that's likely to trigger you, then maybe wait until you're in a place to see those. But as always, there are no numbers in this conversation, and it's a really great one that I seriously cannot wait to share with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener named Mary who writes, Dear Christy, I have a remote history of an eating disorder diagnosed and hospitalized for anorexia 20 plus years ago and have had an ongoing struggle with food and body image ever since. Approximately four years ago, I was introduced to intuitive eating, health at every size, and self-compassion therapy. And as a result, my relationship with my body and food has been the best it's ever been. However, I find that I still struggle to integrate some of the principles of intuitive eating into my day-to-day life. My question is this, how can you determine the difference between a food rule versus an intuitive sense of what makes your body feel its best? I find the lines are blurry at times. For example, I know that if I eat a quote-unquote large amount of food late in the evening, I generally feel sluggish the next day. However, I usually find an evening snack satiates me and improves my sleep. How do I determine the difference between restricting the amount of food I eat as an evening snack versus intuitively knowing that eating beyond a certain point leaves me feeling bloated and lethargic? So thanks, Mary, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So this is such a great question because it really gets into the nuance of how diet culture can co-opt intuitive eating in a really subtle and sneaky way. Because a lot of times, especially early in the intuitive eating process, before you've fully broken down the diet mentality, and remember, rejecting the diet mentality is the first principle of intuitive eating, but before you've fully broken down that mentality, these seemingly intuitive ideas about what makes your body feel its best can actually be coming from diet culture. And one of the ways that this can happen is that in diet culture, there's a tendency to blame food, especially certain types or amounts of food, for any physical symptoms we have, when in fact, food isn't really the main cause or even a cause in some cases at all. 
So I'd invite you to think about other potential reasons why you might feel tired the next day after eating a quote-unquote large amount of food. Because if you're eating that food at that time of night, could it maybe be because you're staying up later and therefore you're hungrier, right? So you're eating more food than if you had gone to bed earlier at night. That's one potential reason why eating a quote-unquote large amount of food might be associated with tiredness the next day that doesn't actually have to do with the food at all. And instead, maybe it's because you stayed up later rather than because of the amount of food you ate. So consider that that is a potential reason here. Another potential reason for eating more food could also be restriction earlier in the day. So I would recommend looking at that, looking at what are you doing earlier in the day when you find yourself eating a large, a self-described large amount of food late at night that might be different from the other days when you just have kind of a smaller snack before you go to bed? Because maybe there's something going on there in terms of unintentionally or maybe subtly intentionally restricting the amount of food you eat earlier in the day. And so then that restriction builds up, that deprivation builds up so that at the end of the day, you're ravenous or really hungry and you end up eating a lot. That's a really common thing for people in diet culture that I've talked about on the podcast a lot before is getting so hungry, getting so deprived earlier in the day that you end up kind of pushing off all your food consumption until later in the day and feeling like you're eating quote unquote too much when in fact you're just making up for lost time because you were so deprived earlier that day. And so in that case, what would happen if you ate more for meals and snacks every day, more food throughout the day in general? Would you maybe have fewer days where you eat a quote-unquote large amount of food late at night? That is something to think about. That is something to experiment with. I know it's tricky, too, because what one person considers a quote-unquote large amount of food might just be a regular amount to another person. And especially when that first person has internalized diet culture beliefs about what is the quote-unquote right amount of food to eat, it can seem like they're eating a large amount of food when it's just satisfying their hunger and they're judging themselves for it. So I would also recommend looking at where you're getting this idea that what you're eating is a large amount of food. Like large compared to what? Are you maybe using portion sizes that are left over from your dieting days as a point of comparison? Because in that case, then eating the amount your body truly needs is going to seem like, quote unquote, too much because it's being compared to a restrictive diety portion, even though in reality, that amount that you're eating is exactly what you need. So that's really something to look at is where is the diet mentality showing up for you in these self-judgments of eating, quote unquote, large portions of food? I also want to point out here some of the language that you used in your question, which gives a clue to another potential way that diet culture is getting a hold of your efforts to eat intuitively. And that is the words sluggish, lethargic, and bloated. So those are words that are often associated with fat phobia. These are words that diet culture in its new modern guise as the wellness diet, diet culture pretending to be about health and wellness, but actually still being about dieting. Diet culture in that new guise is the wellness diet often uses coded language like this, like sluggish and lethargic to mean fat without actually saying the word fat. Bloated is another one that's like so commonly used to mean fat, but they, you know, it's, it's getting away from having to say it. And this is one of the reasons modern day diet culture is so sneaky and so hard to detect because it disguises its fat phobic beliefs as concerns about health. It's like, oh yeah, we all know that losing weight's not cool anymore. So don't worry about your weight. Just worry about not being bloated, not being sluggish, not being lethargic. And it's like, uh, that actually still is fat phobia. 
So Mary, I would wonder if there could be some internalized fat phobia going on for you here, where you're applying these subtle fat phobic beliefs and judgments to yourself for eating a certain amount of food. See if that resonates. See if that's something that might be going on. Because when people use words like that, that really is a clue to me that there's some unexamined diet culture beliefs, internalized fat phobic beliefs that need to be examined, need to be unearthed. And think about what it would be like instead to stop judging yourself in that way. Like, how would your perception of how you feel the next day after eating a larger evening snack maybe shift and change if you let go of those fat phobic beliefs? And how would you nourish yourself differently throughout the day, aka eating more earlier in the day, if you didn't have those fat phobic beliefs? I think in intuitive eating, a lot of the places where we tend to get stuck come back to some unexamined diet mentality. Whenever you're feeling stuck on something with intuitive eating, look for the hidden diet mentality. Look for the hidden diet culture beliefs, whether that's fat phobia or beliefs about certain foods being good or bad or other internalized beliefs that you have from diet culture that might be getting in the way of your practice of intuitive eating. Because I will say nine times out of 10 or probably more, when I see someone stuck in a particular place with intuitive eating, especially if they're questioning whether something is coming from the diet mentality or coming from their intuition, it's almost always actually coming from the diet mentality. So trust that intuition that's telling you you might be turning this into a diet. You might be making rules for yourself about how much you're allowed to eat at night. And work on unearthing those subtle levels of diet mentality, those subtle fat phobic beliefs that you've internalized from diet culture so that you feel and fully trust that you are allowed to eat whatever, whenever, and however much you want at any time of day or night. You truly have unconditional permission to eat. Because telling yourself, well, I have permission to eat late at night, but only a certain amount is actually still conditional, right? That's just conditional permission to eat. And what intuitive eating is about is really unconditional permission to eat. Because it's only when we truly have unconditional permission to eat, whatever, whenever, and however much we want, no restrictions, no rules, that we then can make choices from a place of self-care and not a place of self-control. And again, whenever you find that you're eating to a place of discomfort, look for the hidden restriction. Look for the restriction that you might have been doing earlier in the day. That's a way to address that eating to the place of discomfort that comes from a place of self-care, not a place of self-control. Because the minute you start trying to like cut down on your eating or cut down on your portion size, that's self-control. That's diet mentality. That's not intuitive eating because intuitive eating, again, is about feeling like I'm allowed to take care of myself and eat whatever, whenever, and however much I want. And if I'm eating to a point of discomfort, I need to take care of myself by feeding myself more at other times in the day so that I don't get to that place of discomfort. But also knowing like it's okay to get to eat to a point of discomfort too. And that in fact, it's very common with intuitive eating in the early stages of recovery from diet culture and deprivation, that you're going to eat to a point of discomfort. And that will dissipate as time goes on, as your body learns to trust that it has enough and that it's not going to be deprived again. It's not going to be put through another famine. Because again, as we always say here, dieting is famine. So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. 
And then if you want to ask me any question you want and have me answer it a lot more quickly than I can here, you can come join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. Enrollment for the course is going to be closing next week in preparation for a bunch of great new material that I'm adding. So now is a really perfect time to join because once the new content is added and we reopen enrollment, the price of the course will be going up. So if you join now, you'll be getting the best deal and you'll automatically get all the new content for free as soon as it's released. And I'll be sending out a big email blast to all my participants to tell them what to expect with a new update very soon. The course already has a huge wealth of audio and written content teaching you the principles of intuitive eating, plus an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where you get to ask me your own questions and listen to hundreds of answers that I've already given to other people in the course so that you can work through all kinds of different sticking points in intuitive eating and really put it into practice in your own life. When you join, you'll also get access to our private community that's exclusively for course participants so that you can have real-time guidance from me and my team, as well as hundreds of other great people who are on this intuitive eating path with you, one of them being a participant named Emily who said this about the course. You are just an effing legend. Since starting this course, I'm now making steps to starting a business, and that could never have happened without the freeing up of headspace that your content has created. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And again, enrollment will be closing next week if you're listening to this episode the day it comes out. So now is the best time to join at christyharrison.com slash course. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Poshmark. Get ready to clean out your closet and shop for new spring clothes on Poshmark, the free app where you can easily sell your items for cash. I've been a Poshmark user since last summer, and I've recommended it to so many people who are recovering from diet culture because it's a great way to trade in old clothes that are just sitting in your closet triggering you and get new ones that are super cute and comfortable without breaking the bank or even leaving the house. When it comes to buying, they have tons of lightly used and even brand new items with tags. And when it comes to selling, listing on your Poshmark closet is a breeze. Just snap a few photos of the items you're selling, add the details, and boom! When you make a sale, Poshmark sends you an email with a shipping label and you just ship it to the lucky buyer. It seriously could not be easier. Shopping on Poshmark is amazing because they have so many awesome plus size and size inclusive brands, including Torrid, Eloquy, Premi, Universal Standard, Mod Cloth, and lots more. And right now, Food Psych listeners can get $5 off your first purchase. Just download the free Poshmark app and enter the invite code Food Psych for $5 off when you sign up. That's invite code Food Psych, F O O D P S Y C H, for five bucks off. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Sabrina Strings. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. This is a very interesting question because actually I came to this topic as a result of conversations I had with my grandmother. And when I think about my relationship to food growing up, I feel like so much of that has to do with my relationship to her. My grandmother is or was a Southern Black woman from Atlanta, Georgia. She loved cooking. And so she was always making these massive meals of like, you know, chicken and collard greens and sweet potatoes. And so I just remember cooking and eating being a very communal experience. And I don't recall, especially being a young kid as a black woman or as a black girl, feeling like I needed to try to maintain a particular weight. I definitely remember being able to enjoy food and cooking with gusto until I was probably in about high school. 
In high school, things started to change a little bit. I definitely started to feel like I needed to be more conscious of the way that I looked. But my imagination of what is beautiful and sexy, especially when I was like 15, 16, 17, was really someone who had like beautiful, thick, strong thighs, you know, and a nice uh, rounded butt and a trim waist. I mean, like what we would today call thick or maybe slim thick. So when I was on the track team and sort of talking to my friends who are also black teenage girls, we were, we were often considering like, what kinds of foods do we want to eat or how much do we want to eat to be able to attain that particular look? Of course, we might recognize that as having more leeway than the mainstream predominantly white aesthetic, but any aesthetic which requires you to modify your body is nevertheless still oppressive in some ways. So I remember that I was really and continue to be really into carbs. And so I would have these like full on carb meals thinking, oh, okay, if I'm having pretzels and if I'm having now laters and, you know, maybe I might have some lemonade later, that this is fine. Cause this is like not a lot of fat. <laughs> <laughs> the era of low fat, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So we're talking about the late 1990s when snack wells was all the rage. And so it was like, everything was low fat, right? So I guess for most of my life, I felt like I had a pretty good relationship to food, like eating relatively well-balanced meals until I was in high school. And then trying to find that again on my own when I was in college, which was its own struggle. But yeah, I think that my grandmother really did lay a positive foundation for me about like how I should eat and the joy of cooking and eating. And did she teach you to cook for yourself as well back then? Or She did. So my grandmother loved Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson. And so she would put on a song, you know, and we'd start like dancing around, you know, wow. with a little boom box that you might see, like from the like 1980s and 90s films. So we would have one of those in the kitchen and be dancing and singing and like preparing meals. So that by the time I made it to college, I actually kind of had a basic working knowledge of the kinds of foods that I wanted to cook and eat. I wouldn't consider myself a great cook then or now, <laughs> if I'm being honest, but I could make like a nice roast chicken. My mother is good at baking cookies and I got that from her. So I was routinely making cookies for friends, greens and yams. Like there were certainly things that I had learned from her, from my grandmother in particular, that I took with me. Toward the end of college, actually, when I think about it, toward the end of high school, I decided that I wanted to try vegetarianism. And so that kind of made things a little bit more challenging because now that I'm getting away from some of the foods that I learned to cook growing up, um, which might have included things like pork chops or turkey, now I'm like, well, what does health mean? In the beginning, in my first few years of college, I was eating a lot of bagels. It was ridiculous, <laughs> but it was cheap. You know, I was in college, it was constantly around. And again, I was like, well, this seems like this is okay. You know, I'll just have a bagel for breakfast and maybe a bagel for lunch. You know, who knows what I'd eat for dinner, whatever I could find. So it took years to try to think about what's healthy cooking and eating for someone who is now a pescatarian. And did you, when you originally decided to go vegetarian, was it wrapped up at all in that sort of body image aesthetic that you were trying to attain or was it kind of a separate thing? It was a separate thing, actually. Um, if anything, for someone like me, my thought was always that in the future I would gain weight in all the right places. 
right? So this is like, this is part of the thing of being on the track team. Okay, well, you're getting lean, right? I'm getting muscular. I'm getting the right look. But it wasn't about when I took up vegetarianism, I wasn't attempting to like be skinny. At that time, I was really concerned about trying to eat as well as possible because there are so many people in my family who have diabetes. And my grandmother was one of them. She died uh, as a result of complications surrounding diabetes. And so I thought, this is something that I want to do for myself. I want to just see what being a vegetarian is like. So I did that for a while. And there was this vegetarian restaurant that opened up in Pasadena, which is where I'm from. And I forget the name of it now, although it's still there. And um, I remember going there a few times. Actually, it's a good thing I don't remember the name because what I'm about to say is not flattering. I went there and I would get whatever meal I thought was healthy and then be like, oh, whoa, not good. But <laughs> I did it. Like, <laughs> I, I suffered through this healthy meal, you know, because I want to do what's right. And I want to be healthy, knowing that that's something that I should be concerned about, given my family history. So, yeah, it sounds like health was a sort of punishment almost like you were suffering through it <laughs> <laughs> it did feel like that at the time yeah um i've been back to that same restaurant since and now i enjoy the food and maybe they've changed the menu uh something tells me that they have <laughs> you know it's sort of like the 1990s were a bit of an experimental time for some types of vegetarian restaurants but now that vegetarian restaurants are far more established i find that most of the time i greatly prefer the more experimental vegetarian fare that you can find most places yeah, it's more interesting and and they definitely I feel like now especially in Southern California there's such a a huge audience for it, you know? It's like part of the culture. So, I think yeah. doing a good job with vegetarian food is probably essential if you want to stay in business as a vegetarian restaurant. I'd like to to hope so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, how did it sort of unfold from there then when you were in college and starting to try to reconnect with that relationship with food that you had as a child? I tried to actually start cooking more frequently. I remember I went through this whole phase in the early 2000s in which I was making like a lot of things with zucchini for some reason. I was making a lot of zucchini bread and I really got into making this sort of like zucchini pizza, which <laughs> did not so anyway, we won't get into all of that <laughs> because it wasn't good. Um, but I definitely went through this phase in which I was trying to substitute various types of carbs and meats with vegetables and vegetable bases. And it was useful in a certain way because it was a form of experimentation. But I didn't keep up with it, I guess, because the more I started trying to figure out, you know, like exactly what do I need to eat well and to feel good? the less I started to feel like it could come from any one book as a particular mandate. Um, like, like these sets of recipes are right for vegetarians. So I was like, well, maybe it was a matter also of time and availability because I moved from living in the Bay area and working like a full-time job, but still having my weekends and evenings free to entering graduate school in which that entirely colonizes your entire schedule. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I didn't spend a whole lot of time in graduate school cooking for myself and learning new types of vegetarian or pescatarian options. And unfortunately, there are many ways in which I'm still falling prey to that. So I do cook technically, but it's not exactly experimental or in any way revelatory or challenging to the palate. You know, it's sort of like, I might do a little bit of stir fry, cook up a little fish, 
and there I am. But I do feel like I want to get back to that kind of relationship to food that I had growing up. Yeah, you know, honestly, I feel like I'm at a similar point right now in my life where I just, it's like very sort of functional and it's recipes that I know and not even recipes, just like things that I make, you know, that are sort of easy to throw together. And the experimentation and like fun of it is kind of out the window for now because it's just I'm so busy. But I hope eventually to get back to more like creative energy in the kitchen too. It's just really not, not what's happening right now in my life. Yeah. I, the thing that's funny is that my sister is actually a trained chef. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would hope that I could benefit from that more than I do, but she doesn't, uh, she doesn't live in California anymore. She lives in Texas now. So I don't see her. That's one thing. And I've for the longest time been saying to her, like, we need to make a cookbook because you're a chef and I'm a yoga teacher and that would be awesome. <laughs> you know? And her response is usually like, yeah, so i don't know i haven't figured out a way to fire up my siblings about um, the various book projects i have in mind (laughs) for them but i hope to be able to learn from her because i know that she's quite capable of coming up with new and exciting recipes because i've seen her do it and it's just a matter of well learning them myself and then also putting them to paper yeah and finding the time to sit down with her probably to have her teach you yeah exactly um now that we no longer live in the same state that becomes a serious barrier but Uh, Yeah, I'm hopeful that in the future she'll come around. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, yeah, writing a cookbook is a big endeavor, but, and you have a book under your belt now, so you know, like, how it is. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hoping that the next one won't take nearly as long. Uh, (laughs) But we'll find out. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so I'm so curious, like, getting into that piece of things, how you decided to go into sociology in the first place, where that kind of fits in with your own relationship with food, your own relationship with your body, if that was any part of it at first, or like how your research trajectory sort of unfolded. Yeah, this is a great question, because it gets me back to the thing that I was talking about at the beginning, which is my relationship to my um, my grandmother. And my grandmother is an interesting woman, because she came to California during the Great Migration. And so what happened effectively was that she left a segregated community in the South, in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where she was from, and moved into an integrated community. And for the first time was living and working near white women. And she was fascinated by the diet culture that had clearly already taken hold by that time. In fact, as I explore in the book, diet culture begins in the United States in the 1830s. But what she was seeing in the 1960s, it was her first time experiencing that because of course, when you're living in the Jim Crow South as a poor black person, you're not that concerned about losing weight. Actually, you're hoping to get access to food, which was my grandmother's particular path in life. So she was like, what is going on? (laughs) what What is this? And so in the 1990s, when I was in high school and when she and I would spend a lot of time together, she would say to me sometimes, you know, these white women are killing themselves to be thin. Why are they doing that? And, you know, I'm not sure why she thought I would know, but maybe because I grew up in an integrated community, but I would always have a response like, I don't know. Can I get a cupcake? <laughs> and she would like, lay me off. Okay, get a cupcake. Fine. But it was years later, actually, I was already finished with my bachelor's degree and I was working in San Francisco, Bayview Hunters Point which is a predominantly black portion of San Francisco, or at least it had been um, at that time. I'm not sure if that's true today. 
in any event, my job uh, was to be a research assistant. I was there to interview the participants in this HIV medication adherence clinic about how frequently they were taking their medications, about whether they were going to the doctor, their housing situation, et cetera. One day, I interviewed two women in the same day, one of whom was black and one of whom was Latina. And I was asking them about taking their medications. And they both said to me, oh, no, I don't take my medications. Yeah. I was like, oh, well, why not? Well, you know, the medications cause you to gain weight. These are two women with AIDS who are refusing to take HIV medications for fear of getting fat. Wow. Yeah. Neither one of whom was white, traditionally white at least, the white Latino was there. But nevertheless, it was like mind blowing for me. I was like, how can this be going on? The stakes are literally life and death. And yet they're willing to risk it in order to keep their weight down. So that was, you know, the time at which I was like, well, unfortunately, the funding was cut for that program. The reason being that we weren't able to show efficacy because people weren't taking their medications, partially for reasons that I've just articulated, but for many other reasons why, like poor people who are living with some drug addiction and marginal housing situations don't take their medications. It's quite uh, complicated and multifaceted. When the funding was cut for this program, I decided that I would go back to school and that this would be the thing that I wanted to research. Why is it that people are so dead set on keeping their weight down in the contemporary world? God, what a profound example of that, too. Like you said, it literally is life and death. Yeah, that part to me was just really extraordinary. And so working there was full of many different types of revelations about all of the ways in which the way that we're approaching health disparities is simply not enough. But one of the more problematic aspects of that is that we're expecting people to be concerned about both health and weight. And those two things, being healthy and being slender, aren't necessarily connected. Yes. That's so important to highlight and I think needs constant repeating in this culture we live in because our culture at large and especially the medical community just does not get that. No. There are so many different ways in which that manifests. And I have another story, actually, it's not quite like that one, but myself, I went to the doctor recently, uh, maybe this was sometime toward the end of last year because I was having um, health problems. And the first thing that the doctor wanted to talk to me about was keeping my weight down, <sighs> which was crazy. You know, I'm looking at him and I think that um, BMI is a completely bogus measure, but nevertheless, I know it's the one that they're supposed to be applying. So here I am, someone who's fitting within their own standards, and yet he's still telling me, you know, keep your weight down. This is the way to manage your health issue. That's ridiculous. I can't yeah. even. Oh, <laughs> it was mind blowing. It's completely mind blowing. And the yeah, the BMI is just bogus and needs to be thrown out as any sort of measure of health. And we have like decades of research to support that. And yet still it's being used in healthcare facilities because it's easy. I think that's just and like costs less, you know, than talking to people and getting their health, sort of assessing their health in other ways. But the fact that he would throw that out there at you as like someone who already fits within their norms. It's like nobody wins because everybody is constantly being made to fear weight gain 
even if they're in the so-called normal weight category, which is bogus anyway. And then the weight stigma just gets worse and worse as you go up the weight spectrum. Yes. The implications are deeply problematic because it was unclear to me if I were to lose this weight, how was that going to change the health problem that I was having? Because this is the other thing that happens because a lot of medical practitioners are so focused on getting people to maintain a low weight. They're not able to explain the relationship between the weight and the health outcome of interest. It's like, okay, So I'm already in the quote normal range, but if I become underweight, then somehow that's going to solve my health issue. Like where's the evidence supporting that particular position? But at the same time, I left there feeling like I had really no options with this particular doctor. And I recently just changed doctors as a result of that. Yeah, that's a great thing to do. I think like I'm always telling clients, you know, doctors work for you. You don't work for them. Like it's, yeah. you're allowed to change doctors if it's if there's a service provider whose service you don't like, you can always change. Like you don't have to stick with your doctor. Yeah, it was a tough decision because that doctor's office was so nice mm-hmm. and you never had to wait to see anyone. <laughs> and whatever type of medical test you needed, if you asked for it, they would give it to you. I mean, it was perfect. So I definitely struggled with that decision. But then I thought, this is another example of medical sexism. You know, (laughs) just do I want to keep going to this evidently male doctor who's going to always wonder if the weight is the problem without first assessing what other possibilities might be driving my health concerns? And it's just ridiculous that that would be the first thing he would talk about instead of, I don't know, all the other actual evidence-based things that you can talk about with any health condition. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And um, Samantha B on Full Frontal did a fantastic review of this in a segment she called uh, Thick Not Sick. Yes. In which if a person is fat and they go to see a doctor, frequently they'll say to them, well, the problem is your weight. And then they'll send them on their way. More or less exactly what I experienced as a person in the so-called normal weight range. And in many instances, when this happens, health conditions can worsen precipitously because no action at all (laughs) is being taken indefinitely. It's like, okay, so the doctor says the solution is to lose weight. I either will do that and it won't change anything, or I won't do that and I'll be afraid to return. And now what we've got is that my health condition has worsened because it was never truly investigated in the first place. And then when the person finally does go to the doctor for the worsened health condition, oftentimes that gets blamed on the weight itself, which further exacerbates weight stigma, right? Like the person lost weight and regained it because that's what happens for the vast majority of people, or they weren't able to lose weight in the first place or life got in the way and they didn't try or whatever it was, but then they go back and, and whatever the case may be, it gets blamed on their weight, which is just further entrenching the problem and is just so infuriating to me. Yes. It is one of those vicious cycles. And when I was working on this book, I talked to a faculty member at another university and they were asking me if I thought this book would like change everything. Like, will this end the dominance of BMI? And I thought, well, I hope that people will read it and I hope that it will be informative, but I'm not so naive as to believe that one book can end the domination of BMI. The problem is that there have been people who have saying for a very long time that this is not a helpful tool. But unfortunately, people stick to it because as you stated earlier, it's easy. It's an easy rubric. So why not continue to use it? Well, it's like, well, there are many reasons why we shouldn't continue to use it. I know. 
So many reasons. And yeah, just the the entrenched money in medicine and the weight loss industry too. I think that's a huge piece of it as well is that so many people, the so-called obesity researchers actually have deep ties to the pharmaceutical industry that's making weight loss drugs and companies that are trying to get people to lose weight, you know, like weight loss companies, all the, the disclosures that you see in people's you know, when they do presentations or have to do a disclosure or something in a journal article, it's like you see that they're taking money from all of these weight loss industry places. And I think that's a big part of it, too, is it just feeds on itself. People are getting further and further entrenched as they stay and do the research in the quote unquote obesity world. And they're not talking to or taking in the research and the information from people outside of that world that's saying like, hey, this is not effective or this is wrong or here are the unintended consequences. It's sort of like just a silo. They're in this silo of weight loss at all costs. Yeah, it is a strange kind of echo chamber that way. Another book that is highly worth reading, a fantastic book called Killer Fat by a professor named Natalie Boero. And she talks about this very phenomenon that you've just mentioned, which is that the people who were at the table helping to determine, okay, well, what is needed in order for us to be healthy? And so what do we want to include in our healthy people report for Americans going forward? Many of the people who are at the table were actually involved with groups like Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig. And so, of course, it makes sense for these people who are industry lobbyists to suggest that, well, weight loss is actually the key to good health because it enriches them. And, you know, at this point, it's not even just these major weight loss corporations or doctors, but it's also Instagram celebrities like Khloe Kardashian, who, who knows how much money she's making for promoting this flat tummy tea. I know. Right. (laughs) She's not the only one, obviously, but (laughs) she's one of the more recognizable celebrities. Like, you know, you too can be slim thick. All you got to do is drink the tea. It's like, well, you know, we might have other things that we would be concerned about rather than trying to modify our bodies and lose weight in certain areas. And like the unintended health consequences of it, too, you know, selling something that's going to actually have a negative effect on people's health. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that she would never, unfortunately, be responsible for because she's more or less just someone hawking the product. And so whoever would be responsible is unclear. But at the end of the day, the consumer is the one that loses. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just, I'm so curious to go back and like talk about the history of this with you because you've done such an amazing job of tying together all these threads of kind of like the root system of diet culture and where it all began. And we see how, especially like the racist roots of it and creating the thin ideal then sprouted into this whole thing of selling weight loss to people and mass marketing it. And it's a huge 66 plus billion dollar industry now. Although if you factor in the quote unquote wellness industry, which is just as much a part of diet culture, then the like it's in the trillions, you know? So it's, wow. Yeah. It's like 3 trillion or I can't remember exactly, but yeah. It's a staggering amount. It's wild. Yeah. It's staggering. So, you know, let's kind of go back into, well, first of all, I'm also curious to hear kind of the genesis of this book and how how you discovered this information about the racist roots of diet culture, and then to talk about kind of the specifics of what you found. I like to tell people that this book was about 15 or 20 years in the thinking and about five years <laughs> in the writing. 
because as I mentioned, you know, I started thinking about this seriously in about 2003, once I left the medication adherence program I had been working with and started graduate school the, the following year. And so in the beginning, I was imagining this to be something that was somehow connected to Marilyn Monroe, if you can think about it in that kind of like crazy way. Well, the thing is that Marilyn Monroe was the sort of icon, particularly for white Americans, of beauty and sensuality in the 1950s and early 60s. And she was voluptuous by today's standards. And so I thought, oh, there was this strange thing that happened amongst white America in which there was Marilyn Monroe. And then like a few years later, there was Twiggy. So, so, so something strange took place in the 1950s, maybe. So let me start there. Once I started reading more of the existing literature um, by people like Susan Bordeaux and Naomi Wolf, I realized that this is actually a trend that goes back at least to the early 20th century where we have the flappers. And so then I thought, oh, okay. So it seems as if Marilyn Monroe was actually an anomaly because even at the time at which she was famous and you had other people of that particular generation like Jane Russell, but nevertheless, the slender aesthetic was still in place, right? There was still the, the Catherine Hepburns, et cetera. So what I decided to do with the urging of one of my dissertation committee members was to take a look at women's magazines from the early 20th century and just see what they were saying. And incredibly, a lot of what they were articulating in the early 20th century was like, okay, you are tall and slender, and this is the best model of American beauty. This is the epitome of being a Nordic American. You know, so they were using, <laughs> so, yes. And so they were using very obviously racialized language, which we would never see in a magazine today. No. But at that time, it was not peculiar for Harper's Bazaar, Cosmopolitan, or even not just women's magazines, the New York Times, Washington Post, to talk about the, quote, American beauty, which was someone who was Irish. Maybe she might also be French, maybe a little Scottish, but definitely also British. That was the most important part, you know, the Anglo part. And this Nordic admixture is what contributes to the tall, spelt beauty. And so I was like, oh, okay. Well, so for the most part, the project initially was just about chronicling this happening, the way this in which it was almost like suggesting a positive type of eugenics was taking place in the United States. You know, like we are just, the U.S. is the Nordic and like melting pot of sort of like the best of what Europe has to offer, you can find here in the U.S. Later, actually, after I completed my PhD, I decided I wanted to go back and trace how we ended up there. So I was like, okay, well, if this is what was taking place in the early 20th century, how did we get there? And significantly, how did we go from what we saw in the Renaissance, which was the renderings by Peter Paul Rubens of these voluptuous women, the three graces, right? The Venus before the mirror. How did we go from that representation of beauty to the one that we had by the early 20th century? And <laughs> like finding this out, there was no one clear sort of mechanism for me to do that. And so I had to be very eclectic in my methodology. But essentially what I decided to do was like a reverse genealogy. So I began with these women's magazines and I said, well, who are they referencing? Okay. And the people that these individuals had referenced, who did they reference? Right. And I sort of like had to make my way backward until I actually could land effectively in the Renaissance. 
And so what I was ultimately able to find through this kind of piecemeal reconstruction was that there was a moment in the 18th century in which race scientists in the middle of, well, actually at the height of race making, because it was now the middle of the transatlantic slave trade being a massive and booming enterprise. So the race scientists were writing things like, hmm, well, we know that the Africans are inferior to Europeans. And these are the ways that we know it, right? And of course, the whole point within the context of slavery is to provide a rationale for ongoing enslavement of people of African descent. It's like, okay, in the beginning, we thought we were just different in terms of skin color and maybe some superficial physical features like hair, right? Some of the earliest uh, racial scientific treatises talked about those two things um, extensively. But later they thought, but isn't it also temperament? Doesn't it have something to do with the fact that we as Europeans, is their language, are restrained and logical and rational? And so we have the ability, unlike the lower order of animals, to prevent ourselves from overindulging in any type of, of our, any type of sensual appetite, whether it's going to be sexual or oral. This is in contrast to individuals of the lower races who have no control over their sensual appetites whatsoever. So we expect them to be really fond of fornicating and also very fond of overeating. So this was some of the earliest literature, which you might be able to find uh, maybe like 17 teens to the 1730s in France, actually, where people were saying, huh. We know that Europeans are different from Africans because actually Europeans know when to stop eating. So wild to think about that justification. It's almost like, you know, when you're describing that, it feels like there's an effort to like really entrench the argument, right? To say like, no, it's not just superficial. It's not just because our hair and skin colors are different. It's because they're wrong and bad. And like, look at all the ways that these people we've enslaved are wrong and bad and therefore deserve it. Definitely. And delving into the history of race science was wild. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I mean, because I thought that I understood, okay, well, they made some racial categorization. Someone like Linnaeus, who was also a race scientist, by the way, in addition to being the father of our classification schema, someone like Linnaeus said, there's five races and this is what they're like. I just assumed, I think, that race science more or less took that template and reproduced it again and again. But in reality, race science shifted along with shifting political alliances so that there was a moment in which it was very clear that they wanted to suggest that the Africans from sub-Saharan Africa were very different from Europeans and Northern Africans who would have been grouped as the same race. Of course, today, Europeans would not largely group themselves in the same category as Northern Africans who we would consider Arab. But at that time, it was quite common because it was based largely on skin color. And so to see that there were these shifting understandings of race that very neatly tied to shifting understandings of national politics and also, obviously, capitalist interests, the slave trade being a tremendous portion of that, that actually was very eye-opening. Yeah, it's, I bet, because it's really, it shows how little basis that has in actual fact or science and how political science can be. Right. Because I think we especially, you know, in this day and age, I think there's such a primacy placed on science, but it's science, you know, and that's the thing that's used to justify the so-called war on obesity and so many other things, you know, but to look at, well, science is 
actually made by people and people are a product of culture and political influence and all of these different factors. It's not just this sort of rational, objective point of view. It's actually influenced by all kinds of other things, influence human beings all the time. And we bring our perspectives to that science and then disseminate them through the science. This is the hard thing to communicate to people often because we put science on a pedestal the same way that people might have placed religion on a pedestal previous generations. It's sort of like, because it is quote scientific and we assume, although sometimes we don't have evidence of this, we assume that it followed a, a rigorous, objective, scientific method that we believe that it must be telling us something about fact. When in reality, as you've stated, it's quite clear that culture is influencing science. It's not only influencing what we deem to be um, sort of objective mechanisms for getting at um, a particular question, but it also influences the questions that people will even ask in the first place. One of the interesting things to me about doing presentations about my work that I occasionally do at various universities is that I often get the question, um, well, if it's not BMI, then what is it? Like, hmm, how do we figure out exactly how much fat we will not allow? Uh, <laughs> instead of like underlying that very question is the sense that fat is something that we need to tame in some way, right? And so it's like, but we haven't, okay, people can accept that BMI may not be the best scientific method for figuring out how much fat is simply not allowable, but they do have nevertheless the fundamental belief that we will find the right tool for that problem. Yes. Oh, that's so well said. And it's such an important point because I do see like people agreeing that BMI is flawed and problematic. And they're like, well, actually waist circumference is a better actually body fat percentage. You know, they want to have some other way, like you said, of, of determining how much fat is quote unquote too much or bad instead of questioning the whole premise and the whole assumption that fat doesn't need to be tamed or controlled in the first place instead of opening up to that possibility. I did a presentation once several years ago in which one of the audience members stood up and asked, well, what should we tell fat people? You know, it's like, it's like, if we take your research seriously, well, what do we tell? And my response was, why would we tell fat people something different about how to be healthy than we would tell thin people? Why should people have different messages about the best way to become healthy? Seemingly, what we want to focus on is giving people the tools to eat healthy and to move their body in a healthy way. And that should be enough for all of us. Mm -hmm. And take care of our health in all kinds of other ways too, like going to the doctor, getting access to care and getting enough sleep and all of those other things too. Right. I mean, so obviously there's there's more to a full program of wellness than than just those two things. But but thinking about the kinds of things that we often expect, maybe doctors or nutritionists to tell people, that is where I was sort of targeting my comments, sort of like we can tell people, regardless of their size, that if you can figure out how to eat in a way that is healthy for your body and also move your body, get plenty of water, as you were mentioning, also rest, then these are all good ways of being healthy. Yeah, and that we can take care of ourselves in those ways, independent of size. Size has nothing to do with it. And yeah, we should really be giving the same evidence-based medicine to people all across the size spectrum instead of saying, this evidence-based medicine is good for you if you're in this lower category of weight. But then after a certain point, you don't get evidence-based medicine anymore. You just get, I don't know, wishful thinking. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like the, 
there's just so many problems. <laughs> there's so many problems that we're, we're trying to address here. But it, it does make me wonder, what would it take in order to be able to convince uh, the mainstream of the medical establishment? Because there are those individuals who are within the Health at Every Size movement, um, people like Linda Bacon, who are doctors, um, or at least maybe PhDs, some people who are MDs as well, who are well aware of the fact that um, it is possible for people to be healthy at any size. But that's not necessarily where the mainstream of the medical establishment lands right now. And I wonder what it would take in order to be able to move the needle. I really do too. I mean, I think about this a lot because I do presentations to fellow dietitians, other health professionals, and see the questions that come up for people. And I think it it really is, I think it has to go upstream. You know, like there's that Bishop Desmond Tutu quote of like, it's not enough to just keep pulling people out of the river. We have to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. And, exactly. you know, I feel like it's that it's, we have to figure out, cause I think, especially when people are really far along in their careers as health professionals, I think the more time that goes by and the, the deeper and deeper they get into this medical model of quote unquote obesity, the harder it is to shift gears and to change course. But I think if we can start, you know, targeting these changes at the training level or at the the educational level before people even go into practice, I think that's would be a huge shift that, you know, we would if we could train people in a health at every size framework to start. And so they don't even have to go out there and practice in this weight normative way. They could actually start practicing from a health at every size perspective. Like how amazing would that be? That would be amazing. And it would be incredible if we could get that instituted as some form of, don't really like to use this term, but cultural competence, some type of equivalent to that, which is the idea that we need to know about more than just like how digestion works. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we actually need to know how to work with people and we need to figure out like what are some of the best strategies for engaging different populations and then health at every size could be one of the models that could be instituted. That would be incredible. And so I, I look forward to uh, you being able to uh, <laughs> institute that <laughs> in a small scale. I know. I hope, I mean, hopefully my career can make some small dent in that, but I think all of us working together at all these different levels is really what it's going to take. And I'm yeah. very heartened by the fact that a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are actually dietitians in training or medical students or therapists in training, like people who are coming up in this world and getting the health at every size messages now. They're listening to this podcast now while they're going through their training. And that's really cool. You know, and I get sometimes people asking me like, how do I deal with a cognitive dissonance of the fact that I now know this information and yet I'm still having to get trained in this weight normative model. And that's really hard. Like that sucks, you know, to, for people to have to navigate that in their own training. But yeah, I think if we can, the more people who can start teaching this stuff at the undergraduate and graduate level, the more people won't have to go through that cognitive dissonance. Yeah, that's actually great. It's very helpful too. It's wonderful to be able to have an understanding that change is possible and that, of course, we always want to move to the big R revolution, right? It's sort of like, how do we get to the revolution where we've completely removed BMI? It's like, well, I do believe that it's possible for us to get there eventually, but I think what you've stated it is really beautiful in that we do have to start little by little, like small scale. People being able to read works that are against the BMI model, people being able to hear podcasts or maybe taking trainings, like just... I think that you're right, like over time, that a critical mass of 
informed individuals does develop. Yeah. And then there's also the larger piece of the culture, right? Which is, I think that's the harder ship to turn around, but that's also if we can even start people young, like in the womb, right? Because now there's babies being body shamed for their size and put on diets, you know, like if we can stop that from happening and help people be raised as intuitive eaters to stay in touch with their natural relationship with food, you know, and not have this weight stigma interfere with their relationship with food and their bodies and their relationship with themselves, really, then I think that would also go a huge way towards shifting the culture, too, because people, again, wouldn't even, it wouldn't be a thought in their mind, like, oh, how do I tell fat people not to be fat? It would just be like, people would not accept that premise anymore if the culture changed. We're, I think, at, I want to believe, at a tipping point, because I feel as if right now these conversations are particularly fruitful. When I first started doing this work, I would get a lot of pushback from a variety of different people. I would hear responses such as, how is this an academic project? Hasn't someone already done that? Actually, as recently as about six years ago, someone asked me if my work was dangerous. Like, isn't it dangerous? Like, don't you think it's dangerous that we're not or that you would not be telling fat people to lose weight? And then, of course, I'm always marshalling all of the science that they should be aware of, which suggests that when you tell fat people to lose weight, those that actually do end up losing weight often gain it back. And then so the yo-yo dieting is actually far worse for the body than if a person had simply stayed at their original weight. So. I don't get those kinds of questions anymore, interestingly, about, you know, it's either being completely useless or having been done or being dangerous. Now I get many more people who are like, oh, this is fascinating. I'm really interested in this. You know, I've read some other work by other scholars and now I want to continue reading on this particular topic. So I feel like now is the moment culturally in which people are starting to feel more comfortable thinking differently because when the obesity epidemic language, you know, in quotation, obesity epidemic, when that first hit in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was really no outside of it. I mean, or at least there were no critical voices that people were willing to take seriously outside of it. I should put it that way. Whereas now critical voices are very frequently being heard. And so we got the momentum, I think. That is such a hopeful point of view. And I think I agree. I, I have optimism for that reason, too, because it does really seem like there's a shift happening that yeah. people are are really taking this seriously and questioning the received wisdom that we've always gotten about fatness. And I think, yeah, the the sort of late 90s, early 2000s shift into like fat is killing us mode, which is, you know, has come to dominate the public health sphere really didn't have enough opposition at first. I mean, it definitely had people like questioning it and calling it out, but I don't think it had the sort of level of criticism and pushback that it does now, which is exciting. Yeah, I would agree with that. I want to circle back and and talk a little more about the racial aspects of diet culture and sort of the development of, you know, that we were talking about race science and how basically it was, came out of this political necessity, quote unquote, of the people who are enslaving other people to try to justify their continued enslavement. And how did it get from there to specifically the idea that fat is bad because it's associated with blackness? How did that shift start to happen in the sort of zeitgeist? Yeah, that's a great question. So in the beginning, a lot of the interest was in whether or not black people were, quote, greedy eaters. 
And so there was this concern that, you know, black people had a very fond relationship to food. And there were even prior to like the rise of this particular type of race science, which was in the 18th century, as early as the 16th century, that had been tales coming out of various colonial reports, which suggested that if you went to Turkey or Egypt, that you could see these women who had like a fondness for the art of feeding, right? And so that they would like spend their entire day basically feeding themselves, right? Um, so it's not as if it began entirely in the 18th century, only that it was formalized as a form of um, racialized logic by that time. Um, what we find is that some of these reports that were being written, again, a lot of these were being written by French theorists, were being read in places like England. And so that some of like this race science would make its way into mainstream reports of well, just pretty much day-to-day uh, -day chronicling of events so that you might find in something like The Spectator, which was like a men's magazine, as it was in the 18th century, that they would also talk about weight in these racialized ways, which was kind of fascinating when I was reading this. I was like, oh, well, here they're sort of reproducing the idea that there are certain places where you go and you will find certain types of beauty. And in... Europe, or in England in particular, as they're talking about in The Spectator, this is where we find a beauty that's refined, right? And refined beauties do not have, you know, they would say things like rolls of fat. Like if you want to go and find, they would use terms like a beauty by the ton, you know, here are some other places where you can go and find that. So this received wisdom from the race science was being reproduced in mainstream sources in England. And the United States is the place where the slender aesthetic took off. So it became the place par excellence for the thin ideal by the 19th century, because not only did they have the legacy of getting these reports from racial scientific theorists, but also, of course, Americans, you know, in the 19th century frequently imagined themselves to be the sisters or the kin of English people. And so they were taking on a lot of the ideas that were being produced in English popular media and simply republishing them. That was one other thing that I thought was sort of fascinating. It's like they would take a writer in England who would be relatively well known and simply republish all of their works. And this <laughs> oh <God>. was a way. <laughs> I cringe yeah. as someone who's like trying to, <laughs> I'm sure you do too, like yeah. oh, build a body right. of work. It's just like, nope. They're going to republish it. No yeah, no, well, well, yeah, but that's the thing. It's sort of like, well, if we imagine that we are a nation in league with the sort of like the great British empire, you know, where the sun never sets, then what we can do is simply respect their intellectuals. Know that, let them know that we are reading them by simply republishing them. <laughs> so a lot, of, yeah, a lot of the same types of discourse that was seen in, you know, 18th century England was reproduced in 19th century United States. Of course, the difference between England and the U.S. is that in the United States, we had slavery, right? We had slavery here within the country, whereas this did not take place there. So there was an even greater imperative to try to make very clear distinctions between who was white and who was black. And body size became part of that adjudication. Yeah. How did that play out exactly? Like, how did body size become sort of a locus of that kind of discrimination? Because one of the things that, to me at least, 
was revelatory. Women have long had to be more concerned about their appearance. And so even as a lot of the writing that was taking place in England was being done by men, and of course, all of the race science in its written form was being written by men, it was actually a lot of women in the United States who thought, ah, this is something that we want to read because this is valuable for us in our context. Not only are we Protestants, and therefore we are against gluttony, but also we are a nation of Anglo-Saxons. And so we want to make it clear as white Anglo-Saxon Protestants that eating a particular way is very important for health, godliness, and for beauty. Really tied together all these threads of disparate ways that diet culture started to infiltrate. Yes. It's not as if men were not also making these claims in the United States because they were. But there were far more, I suppose, women who were active participants in it here than I saw evidence of them being active participants in other countries. And that there was like a great body of literature being produced by women themselves about all of the ways in which they should regulate their eating. Yeah, it was so fascinating, the the section you have on like Godies or Godies. I don't know how you pronounce it, but... Yes, Godies. Godies Ladies Book. Yeah. Yes. Like first, basically the first women's magazine, right, in the U.S.? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of that magazine and kind of how it started to plant the seed of the thin ideal, really? The editor of Godies was someone who was a serious admirer of many different English intellectuals, one of whom was a woman by the name of uh, Lady Mary Wortley Montague, um, but there were others, um, including people like uh, Thomas Carlyle. And so frequently what would happen is that this lady's book, which interestingly enough, um, the editor, a woman by the name of Sarah Hale, she was not necessarily fond of fashion, but she was a Protestant and she had been involved in the, the Second Great Awakening that was taking place in the United States. And she was also very much about educating women and girls. So between being uh, involved in the Great Awakening and being an educator, she thought it was her moral responsibility to tell women how they should eat, right? And so she would frequently pen pieces like this, but then there would also be other individuals. So many of the writers for Godie's Ladies Book were in fact women, and they would pen pieces themselves. And some of these women were more invested in fashion and beauty. And so whereas for Sarah Hale, the question was always, how do we eat right for God? right? We want to show temperance at the table, right? We think of temperance as a term that refers to people who might be prone to alcoholism, right? So not drinking too much, but it was also applied to concerns of overeating in the 19th century. So while she was making sort of these types of claims, other individuals would in their pieces say things like, and you know, it's important for us to keep in mind that if you want to be fat, there are other places where you can go for that. You know, you can go to Africa. I mean, like, <laughs> we can't imagine this today, right? Yeah, no, uh, because of course no one would say that. No. But yeah, in the 19th century, they were quite clear. They're like, well, if you want to be a woman of fashion, you know, someone who has an air of cultivation and a particular type of means, then you should maintain a particular body size. You know, if you want to be fat, you can go to Africa very <sighs> clearly. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, I think coming across a lot of the material that I explore in the book, I was originally sort of just 
amazed is the words. It's like to see these kinds of things in writing. It's like, wow, they actually wrote this. And, you know, not only did they write this, but all of this history seems to be largely forgotten. We seem to have forgotten about the fact that there was a massive chronicling of all the ways in which whiteness is related to slenderness and fatness is related to blackness. And that latter pairing being a bad thing, that this was in a number of publications for decades, but it somehow went away by the mid 20th century. People stopped talking about it in those terms and people largely forgot about it. Why do you think that is? Why did it go away? There is this book by Julian Castro. It's called The Heart of Whiteness. It's a really interesting book. And what he's talking about is that sometime between 1890 and 1940, white people in America who had been quite proud to be Anglo-Saxon or Nordic would be the terms that they would normally use, started to think that it was gauche to talk about race openly. So instead of talking about race and saying words like white, they would talk about culture or propriety or normality. Interesting. That I think really speaks to like how we talk about these things today in sort of mainstream American society because, and really mainstream culture, like Western society, probably the, the way that American culture has been exported around the world. We don't overtly talk about race anymore. And I mean, there's still obviously some corners of the world, especially in American culture that do. And we saw them come out of the woodwork with the Trump election and, you know, all of that. But I think for the most part, mainstream America doesn't really talk about race in that way, but it's coded now, right? It's it's talking about health. It's talking about, quote unquote, obesity. It's talking about all these things that are kind of proxies in a way for race. Yes, it's coded. But even the people who are using these code words aren't always necessarily clear that what they're trying to avoid is rooted in anti-blackness. This is sort of one of the, the, the fascinating sort of revelations. I speak to people quite frequently who say things like, I would have never thought that there was this relationship between fat phobia and anti-blackness. And, so, and recently I was having a conversation with someone and they mentioned one of their friend's questions uh, so that they wanted to pose to me, which was, but what about the fact that fat phobia also besets white women today. And you know, my response was, well, actually the reason for fat phobia affecting white women is because fat phobia is related to anti-blackness. <laughs> um, it seems counterintuitive, but the idea is that if fatness is related to blackness, and if there was an entire movement in the United States where white people were trying doggedly to prove that they were white and not black, then it's very important for white women not to be fat. So there's a way in which fat phobia being an index of anti-blackness very directly harms white women in contemporary America. Yes. That is such an important point, I think, to, to clarify, because I think people get hung up on, you know, when you talk about like intersectionality or when I do anyway, when I try to talk about this as a social justice issue, I feel like it loses people, you know, like I still talk about it anyway, but I think it, I think some <laughs> people, you know, don't quite get it because it takes a lot of explanation. It takes a lot of sort of questioning assumptions, I think, to uncover what the actual links are between things like weight stigma and other forms of discrimination. And so I feel like this historical 
tracing that you did of really elucidating the sort of clear, obvious examples of those roots really helps to show like, no, this didn't just go away. This isn't just fat phobia doesn't just affect like upper middle class white women the way we used to think, you know, the way that that some like what your grandmother's comment was was sort of like, why are all these white women dying to be thin? It's like, yes, that is that is the case. And it's also because of this larger racist legacy. Yeah. One term that I use in the book is race acts as a double agent. So we think of race and racism denigrating black people and other people of color. And it does that. But it also serves to discipline white people. Because if we know that black people are bad, wrong, immoral, hypersexual, hyperoral, all of these things, then it is important for white people to prove that they are superior by disciplining themselves to be slender and moral and all of the other elements of propriety that would prove that they belong on the top of a racial hierarchy. Yes. Oh, it's so insidious. It is. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think the fact that this still exists today, that there's still this legacy of racism in our thin ideal and in diet culture, I think is really important to call out because it affects different people in different ways, right? Like, how would you say this sort of thin ideal and diet culture today and its its form now are affecting black women, white women, everyone else, really? This is a really interesting question because I was just talking with a group of undergraduates in this fantastic class that I was fortunate enough to be a guest speaker in. And I was asking them, well, if you look in the mainstream media and you see people like Cardi B and Nicki Minaj and, you know, even, you know, the Kardashian-Jenner complex, all of these individuals have a, a more voluptuous, curvaceous aesthetic. So didn't we do it? Like, haven't we conquered the slender aesthetic? And the students were saying, you know, it's like, that is also unattainable. It's not as if tomorrow I can wake up and hope to have the curves of Nicki Minaj or Kim Kardashian or like all of this takes a tremendous amount of money, first of all, because often plastic surgery is involved. But on top of that, you still need to be concerned about maintaining a particular weight. So I think even in the black community, this is something that I've written about elsewhere, even in the black community, thickness is often prized, but not necessarily fatness. So we still do have this legacy of trying to figure out, okay, but how much fat will we allow? certain types of fat in certain places, black culture, and even now more so than used to be the case in the past, many other cultures are prizing that. But it doesn't mean that we've gotten away entirely from fat phobia or the thin ideal. When you look at the upper echelons of society, when you look at people who are top models, top actresses, whenever we consider elite culture, elite culture hasn't really been pierced by this new move towards greater curvaceousness. As far as I can tell, the runways are still stalked by women who are 5'11 and quite slender. So in that way, we can see how there's starting to be this challenge, this implicit challenge to the idea of skinniness that has not nevertheless toppled fat phobia. Such an important point. And like, it really is still oppressive, like you said earlier, you know, even if it's 
thick, but still with a slender waist or whatever. Like there's still this unattainable ideal that people are striving for. And even like I was doing some research, I'm writing a book also and have a sadly just one chapter on the history, but I've like wanted to do so much more on it because it's just so fascinating to look into the history of all this stuff. But I was looking at, you know, the Victorian ideal and how it sort of shifted from like, actually being voluptuous and having lots of curves and having lots of flesh was a good thing in the Victoria, you know, seen as a good thing then. And then slowly with like the Gibson girl and the flapper, it started to, the ideal started to get thinner and thinner. But some of the quotes I was finding about the Victorian times were like that, you know, fatness was prized and larger bodied women were held up as this ideal and then thinner women were denigrated and called, you know, said to have like defects because they had visible bones or something like, you know, like <laughs> it's like <laughs> there's never a time it seems like in in at least American culture, Western culture, maybe when there was no ideal that was being used to oppress women in some way or gender nonconforming people like in some way. One thing that I didn't explore fully in the book, but may do some other writing about, is that in the south of the United States, in the tail end of the 19th century, so still part of the Victorian area that you're talking about, it was actually kind of fascinating because there were the competing drives to gain weight and to lose weight. So it would have been, there would have been women writing into magazines, which people often did, sort of writing letters to the editor, or maybe just writing to an advice column. It would have been very common to see women one week saying, you know, I'm really trying to gain weight because I want to be, you know, more buxom. And then the next week it would be someone talking about how they want to lose weight. And, how, and so there was, there was this moment <laughs> in which the, it hadn't, the slender aesthetic, which by that time was dominant in the North, really hadn't conquered the South. Um, and so there was this moment in which people were trying to find that equilibrium. And there was this contestation that was going on that was um, very interesting to see play out. That's so fascinating, like really just ping-ponging back and forth between these two opposites. And then clearly the thinness won out eventually, like the thin ideal won out. But yeah, and it just, it speaks to also just how oppressive the, how oppressive body ideals are in general, that people are spending their time writing into magazines and being like, I need to do this. I need to change myself. I need to change my life in order to achieve this ideal rather than just like having your headspace free to devote to other things in life. Yeah, and this is the curious irony of beauty, which is that I think there's a lot of ways in which we might view it as some sort of empowering or even a certain type of armor. You know, I know that when I put eyeliner on in the morning, I feel like I've really done something, especially <laughs> if the line is right. Yeah, uh, totally. <laughs> but there's also a way in which it is oppressive and constant and sort of inescapable. And that's actually what it's intended to be, the two things at once. You're supposed to feel the sort of like joy and this playfulness about it. You know, you're supposed to revel in it and, you know, expect compliments, even as you're supposed to know that there are all of these things that you need to do. Like you're not free. I mean, sure, maybe one day I could not put eyeliner on, but I'm absolutely not free to go out every day without having done my hair up or every day without, you know, having shaved my legs or some other type of thing, right? Like there's a certain threshold, then like a, a certain amount of non-femininity that society will allow before you start feeling some blowback from that. So yeah, whenever we think about you know, like the standards of femininity, you do find yourself in this curious double bind of like, at least for me, I'm like, there's so much that I enjoy about being femme. And then there's so much that I look at and like, oh yeah, this is definitely <laughs> oppressive. 
Same. Totally. And yeah, that's such an interesting point too about the, the sort of feeling good about it and feeling like, oh yeah, this is fun. I'm enjoying playing with this actually serves to further the system. Like it, it's, it has to have both. It has to have that sense of like the carrot and the stick, you know, like the benefit of it. And then also like, but don't, you know, toe the line or else kind of thing. Yeah. Definitely. (laughs) Well, I could talk to you forever. This is so much fun. And I'm really, really grateful that your book is out there in the world and you're doing the work you're doing. So tell us where people can find you online and learn more about your work and your book. So you can find me on Race and Yoga, which is a Facebook page that's uh, open for anyone to join. And we also have um, a Twitter presence and an Instagram presence, also Race and Yoga on Instagram and on Twitter working on getting my own personal websites that will be in the making. But um, for those of you who are interested in checking out my book, uh, you can find it wherever books are sold. Um, The easiest portal is Amazon, but you can also go directly to the NYU Press page and you can find my book there, which will be out on May 7th. That's so great. We're going to put links to that in the show notes as well. And I don't think we said the title yet, but it's called Fearing the Black Body, right? Yes. The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. Yes. I love that subtitle. It's so so clear. Well, thank you so much for for being here. We'll put links to your book in the show notes. And I think everybody should go read it because it is just fascinating and so much good storytelling in it. So really, really enjoyed reading it. Well, thank you so much, Christy. It's been a pleasure. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Sabrina Strings for being here and sharing her wisdom with us. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on the anti-diet path, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message because who doesn't by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Sharing on one of the Apple platforms is particularly helpful because it brings us up in the podcast rankings so that more people discover us and the anti-diet movement. Also, be sure to subscribe in your podcast provider of choice, which you can do by going to christyharrison.com slash subscribe. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, go to christyharrison.com slash 196. That's christyharrison.com slash 196. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode of Food Psych was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food, break free from diet culture, and reclaim the life it stole from you, come join the course for a wealth of support and guidance. Enrollment closes next week if you're listening to this episode the day it comes out, so now is the best time to join. Just go to christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. A big thanks to our editor and engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, and our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble, and our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stay psyched.